Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Very excited, Kieran Maguire, I have to say. It's it's 20.37 on Sunday evening and you've just got back to Liverpool from Sheffield, Kieran. What a, what a pleasant afternoon you had in Sheffield. Uh, yes, yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. It's, it's the most goals we've ever scored away in the... Uh, in the top flight, so yeah, fa- fantastic. Very conflicting for a, a football fan watching uh, a team he hates having to be a team that he's involved in the relegation battle with. It's, I would have, I would have settled for two nil, but I said, oh, they won five. Well, I, we were I, helping you with your the goal difference could be important to Palace at the end of the season. Yeah, I've stopped worrying about Sheffield United. To be perfectly honest, I'm I'm more worried about yes. I'm more worried about lawyers. To be perfectly honest, it's legal. It's, it's Everton, the Nottingham Forest legal teams are the ones, the teams that are really worrying me. I can see you're in a hotel, Kieran, but um, they seem to have put you in the attic room. But they have, yes, yes. I arrived here quite late, um, and, and I mean, it's, it's the place I stay every week. And I walk through the door, and you, and you know that look when they go. Oh, I wasn't expecting him. So yes, I've been stuck in the attic, <laughs> so, and it's and it's gorgeous. And it's got oak beams and the full works. So it, it's it, it's very uh, uh, it's, it's very evocative. It's very uh, very emotional place. But yeah, not not quite what I was expecting. Yeah, gen- gentlemen of your stature shouldn't be in the attic room. I I like to think that the staff at that hotel here speculate on a weekly basis about what it is you do for a living. It's like, what's, he, what's he doing here? Is he some kind of spy? Is he a pornographer? Like, he just turns up every week. He demands the same room. I'm not, I'm not demanding, but no, um, I'm not demanding. Uh, I, I, I might have to stay here for a, for a longer period of time than I envisaged because um, I, I've not seen the Baroness for two or three weeks, and I forgot to tell her that I was going to Sheffield and setting <laughs> off at seven o'clock this morning. Uh, and when I mentioned this to her yesterday. Um, with my logic, which was, well, I'm going up north anyway, but she says, but you're leaving it, you know, normally leave at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. Um, I said, well, you know, it's not that far away. And, no, so I'm up here. Yeah, it's, uh, I think I need to do a bit of uh, uh, recuper- regeneration of, uh, of of my love for my wife. And she she knows you love her, Kieran. She, she knows the way your mind works. It's the sort of thing that could slip anybody's mind, the fact that they're getting up at, half five in the morning to go to Sheffield. I've, I've quite often gone to bed of an evening thinking, what is it I'm doing? To... Anyway, it's questions day, Kieran, but we're going to start in a slightly different way because I'm going to let you get your breath back. Um, we're going to start with um, a letter we had, uh, or a letter you had, I should say, uh, from a chap called Eric Hanslip. And it's off the back of our discussion a couple of weeks ago about whether or not uh, your house price goes up in value if you are situated next to a football ground. Um, and Eric, who's um, an older gentleman, I would guess, by the time of the story, sent us this wonderful email uh, and said, your discussions on the pod regarding living near a football ground prompts me to tell a story about my father. He was born in Highbury in 1908 when Arsenal, brackets Woolwich Arsenal, were playing south of the river. Um, I, I've got a friend who's a, a Tottenham fan in his 70s, still refers to Arsenal as a South London club. He won't have it. It's not a North London derby. They're a South London club. Eric says when his dad was five, 
his family were living in Avenal Road. Now, if you are familiar with the old Arsenal Stadium, Avenal Road was where the main entrance to the ground was situated, which was a lovely sort of fancy Art Deco affair. They had the famously had the commissioner, of course, who used to stand there in his uniform. And on the 6th of September 1913, says Eric, two days before Dad's fifth birthday, Arsenal played their first match at the Noobs ground and his family were just five terraced houses from the North Bank. I talk about going to Arsenal, but in Dad's case, Arsenal came to him, which is a lovely sentiment. Later, the family moved to Conewood Street, which is a road opposite the main entrance and features in a scene from the Fever Pitch film where the Colin Firth character is anxious to live in a house close to the ground and goes to view one in this street. I'm grateful that Arsenal moved from Woolwich to Highbury, otherwise my father and I might well have ended up supporting the team that had been closest to his home before that, Tottenham, and probably would have spent a lot of time in therapy. Uh, um, I'd like to thank Eric for that uh, email because it just we we talk a lot in our books Kieran we've talked about the history of football we talk about how teams come about we talk about where they play and and here's a chap whose dad lived on the street that Arsenal moved into what so his, his dad was a proper part of football history and so Eric was as well so I, I, it's a sort of thing that I love, and I know when you sent it to me, so it made you feel warm and fuzzy inside, which that really made me pleased, because I've often tried to explain to you what drinking alcohol is like. <laughs> I've never been able to. And for the first time, you reading this email. So, Eric, thank you for that. We send you our very best. Um, yes, if absolutely. you have any photographs, if you've got photographs of your dad or, or of the house, we'd, we'd absolutely love to see them. And if anybody else has, has similar stories, we're always open to actual real-life stories of football history. Kieran, our first question comes from Robbie Whittaker. Uh, and Robbie Whittaker says, As a Blackpool fan, there was a time when we had a good rivalry with Scunny. Now, mm. if Robbie doesn't mind, I'm going to use the word Scunthorpe from now on because I, I shudder. I, I say the word Scunny and it's, it feels somehow like a Shakespearean disease. I've <laughs> come, down with it, come down with a touch of the Scunny. Uh, uh, I know an, an, an effete southerner, but I, I'm going to say Scunthorpe. Uh, but Robbie says, it's been shocking for me to see what a precipitous fall that Scunthorpe have had down the league pyramid, which, of course, we have been following here in, with a great deal of unease. Um, Robbie says, you often talk about the financial impact of falling out of the 92, but what's your assessment of what happens when a previously established football league club falls straight through Tier 5 into Tier 6? I do appreciate by the time you reach this question, Scunthorpe may be back and flourishing. If so, perhaps you could just talk about another team of plucky underdogs <laughs> instead. It's, I mean, it's an interesting question, Kieran, because we, it has been the most astonishing fall from grace for Scunthorpe recently, isn't it? So it's, it does give us a chance to reassess where they are now and to answer Robbie's question about what happens to a team of that statue when they do fall so low. Yes, it, it can be a very significant redress and reset for the club, which can take a long period of time. Um, if, if I give a couple of examples, um, we've got Stockport County, who were relegated to the National League from League Two in 2011. And then they dropped into National League North a couple of seasons later. So it wasn't immediately down to National League North, but it was pretty quick. Um, and they spent four seasons Getting back, and you know, I, I used to live in Stockport um, when I was living in Manchester, and Stockport used to get you know decent crowds. So by National League's North standards, um, yeah, they were taking uh, big numbers, and, and you know, 
North, northern clubs have, have always had fantastic fan bases. Um, you know, we, we've seen, I think, this weekend, uh, uh, the Berry, Berry ended up not going to the Isle of Man with their, their fans, about five or 600 of them being stranded uh, at Manchester Airport when, when the match effectively wasn't going to have to take place. Um, so in the case of Stockport County, they are now back in League Two and they're having a, a pretty good start and a pretty good season. But it's come at a financial price, and I think it's fair to say that the the club, to a certain extent, was between a rock and a hard place for a few years um, in, in National League North. It finally got back to the National League, but the National League itself is incredibly competitive. Um, and Scunthorpe sorry, and, and Stockport County are the club um, with the biggest losses, financial losses ever made in a single season in the National League uh, in order to, to get back out um, and into uh, the, the EFL. Um, part of the reason for that is that you don't have the benefits of the TV deal. Um, you know, the EFL deal, whilst modest, certainly compared to that of the Premier League, but it's also modest compared to the, the other three, the other two divisions as far as the EFL are concerned, because clubs in the... Um, Clubs in League Two get eight percent of the, the package, and clubs in the Championship get eighty percent. But even that is probably worth around about half a million pounds a year, um, compared to probably about ten to twenty grand in the National League, and, and effectively diddly squat um, if you get as far as low as National League North was concerned. And then to get out of the National League, it's an expensive business because you've got so many clubs who are former members of the EFL, plus you've got aspirational and ambitious owners of clubs in the National League itself who, who want to join the 92. So it, it has been tough. If we if we take a look at the clubs that sort of have gone down, um, you know, York City, they, they went uh, in, into the National League in 2016 and straight down to National League North, and I think they found it quite tough. If you... Take a look at the attendances for Scunthorpe United. They're averaging nearly 4,000 this season. And the two other clubs with the, the highest attendances in that division are, are Hereford FC, who are no longer Hereford United, and Chester FC, who are no longer Chester City, because both of those clubs have effectively gone out of existence. So that is just how tough it is um, to get out of those divisions. So... Um, yeah, yeah we, we wish all the best to Scunthorpe um, because it has been very, you know, very precarious, I think, for their fans and so on. But, uh, yeah, that, that's that's where we are. So if getting down is, is sad, fans still stay, you know, fans still stay loyal, but getting back up is really tough. I'd, I'd be interested to hear from some of our overseas listeners about this, Kieran, especially on the European continent, because it... It strikes me, you look at teams like Oldham, Chesterfield, Southend, Stockport and Scunthorpe that you've mentioned, Aldershot, Hereford. It, it seems to be a peculiarly English thing where clubs can can plummet, hurtle through so many divisions. You don't... Uh, I, I, I can't really think of too many situations in, in European football where, where well-known established clubs suddenly have such a precipitous descent so I'd be interested to hear from from 
uh, overseas listeners about their experiences. About so I know there are a couple of clubs that, that went out of business and then came back again uh, and had to start again. But it, it seems to be a peculiarly part of the English pyramid. I mean, it doesn't tend to happen in Scotland, for example. Then it, it doesn't seem to happen the other way around so much now as well. It's like the, the, the days when a Wimbledon will go from the fourth division to the first division seem to have probably long since gone. So I'd be interested to hear from overseas listeners about that as well, about their stories of, of smaller teams. I mean, is there something about the nature of the English pyramid? I mean, in a way, maybe that's good. Maybe the, the, the fact that the English pyramid is so wide at the bottom acts as a kind of safety blanket in a way or, or safety net. I think it is part of the the culture and the identity and the heritage of individual towns and cities that they feel the importance of having a football team is is absolutely critical. So when Hereford United went bust, when Chester City went out of business, the the fans said we still want a football club and also Berry. You know we we have Berry yeah, yeah, AFC. Of course, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think people want to preserve that. Because that is, you know, how 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 do I explain myself if I'm from a, a town or town or city? Well, a town tends to be the case, which which doesn't have a football club, which and the idea that it that we let it we let it cease to exist, and we've not done anything to to resurrect it, even in an alternate form as a phoenix club. I think I think it's just testament to fan culture in this country that we, we it is something which is so important to us that we will do our best to to preserve it even in a slightly different format. Yeah, yeah. oddly enough, Kieran, I've just realised we do have a question coming up about small clubs going the other way, going upwards. Uh, but such is the nature of you, me, and producer guy that we've decided not to ask it after the <laughs> in the logical place where it should be. <laughs> we've decided to have a diversion, Kieran. Uh, and this diversion comes from Paul Begley. Um, and if the Baroness has got the hump of you at the moment, this strikes me as a sort of spreadsheet heaven question that would have the Baroness <laughs> the locking doors and taking the dog for very long walks yes. and just shout, what do you mean you didn't know you were leaving at 7 o'clock in the morning? Paul Begley has, uh, again, I suspect this is one of those questions that started in a pub. And they've decided there's only one way to resolve this. Let's get let's <laughs> get Maguire in. Let's shine shine the POF logo into the sky with the Maguire torch and get Maguire in. Because Paul Begley says, "What are the top three worst transfers in history from the financial side, as in transfer fee paid, wages, goals to games ratio, appearances, etc.?" Eden Hazard to Real Madrid stands out to me. A hundred million pound plus wages and returned four goals in four years. Or maybe Sanchez to Man United, or maybe Dembele to Barcelona. Some major flops out there, Kim. So I'd be interested in your your take. Yes, I, I think this is the perfect pub question because there there cannot be a definitive answer. Oh, um, okay. But I, I, th- I certainly when I I independently started to look at this, and I think Griezmann came up. Um, in terms of Barcelona, I think Barcelona have to have a special, uh, special blue plaque for signing Griezmann for more than a hundred million pounds, Philippe Coutinho for more than a hundred million pounds, and, and uh, Usman Dembele for more than a hundred million pounds, stroke euros, and all three of them, um, I think it's fair to say, didn't succeed. Uh, Griezmann went back to uh, Atletico Madrid. 
um, on loan within a couple of seasons, and such was the reluctance. And this this is this is sort of um, shousery of the of the ultimate that under the terms of Griezmann's loan arrangement from Barcelona back to Atletico Madrid, um, they had to pay a forty million euro buyback fee if he played more than a certain amount of time. So therefore, they only played him for 30 minutes a game because it meant <laughs> that they kept within, the, uh, kept, kept, within, kept within the parameters. And they bought him back for 20 million euro, having sold him for 120 million euro. So that's, that's quite spectacular. Um, and then he went on to become the all-time record goal scorer. In fact, he's just achieved that at Atletico Madrid. So that really rubs it in. Um, certainly, Philippe Coutinho. You know, he when you look at his goal-scoring record at Barcelona, it, you know, he he won two La Ligas in his first two seasons, but something wasn't quite right, and he ended up going on loan to to Bayern Munich, which came back to haunt Bayern Bayern Munich. Then he went on loan to Aston Villa, and Aston Villa finally bought him, and that that didn't quite work out. Um, so there was all of that taking place. And because they were spending so much money, it meant that they couldn't continue to employ Lionel Messi. So all of the so the when I look at those transactions sort of individually, you can say, well, you know, Pat, was it the Griezmann one? Was it the Coutinho one? Ultimately, meant that they had to get rid of Lionel Messi to comply with the La Liga cost control record rules. So I think those those three are certainly significant. Um, in terms of Romelu Lukaku, I've got him down in my, my top three. Uh, he cost Chelsea £97.5 million. He scored eight goals. He'd signed a five-year contract. Um, and he's been at Chelsea now for what, three, three and a half seasons. And he still scored eight goals because he's ended up going out on loan. Um, and nobody's willing to pay a, pay a fee for him because his wages are so high at Chelsea that Chelsea is still having to pay a significant proportion of those wages and, and other clubs are getting the benefit. So, so there's that. Um, and, and I think, uh, again, Alexis Sanchez, who was, um, I, I can only describe as being signed on the crest of a slump um, <laughs> in, in the sense that his, his career at Arsenal was, it was brilliant. He was brilliant for a few years and then he, he went off the boil so, so why did Manchester United sign him? I mean, that one did seem very strange. He only scored four goals for Manchester United. The benefit for Manchester United was that he was actually part of the player swap with Mkhitaryan. So, you know, that one was that one wasn't great. Um, a shout out for uh, Torres going from Liverpool to Chelsea for what then was a record fee, um, and. Again, that one didn't work out, but Chelsea fans will point out. Well, hold on, you know he did score in a you know in a in a cup final, um, so that was. But his his career went downhill, and and, and you know they, they tend to be strikers because they tend to be more high profile. Um, but if you take a look at what we refer to as impairments, and, and impairments is where the accountants go, 
even after amortising the players, we still think the player's worth less than his accounting value. And it's not that frequent. Um, Chelsea, I think in terms of Lukaku um, and uh, Kepa, the goalkeeper, I think those are two of the, the biggest decreases in value. And Manchester United have probably put through one in respect of Lukaku as well. I remember seeing Torres score. I think he scored a hat-trick for Liverpool against Fulham. Mm. And I remember thinking, for me at the time, he was up there with, with Henri, Bergkamp. And then it just proves that some players can only do it in some teams. But yeah. it's, it's interesting. Cause I was going to say, the problem with Paul's question is he, it's much easier to, con- to quantify if a striker's been a terrible buyer. But having said that, I think most Palace fans would admit that arguably our worst buy ever was Valerian Ishmael. I think we paid £5 million for as a centre-back. It was shocking. Terrible. Terrible. And he's now managing for what? Who's Brighton's worst buyer, would you say? In the Premier League era, we signed a number nine from the Netherlands, who, who was our record, score, record signing, again, about £15 million, which, you know, for Brighton. Um, and uh, he, he then admitted he, he, he was scared of heading the ball, which, which for a number nine. So Jürgen Lacadia... <laughs> Um, yeah, you go, well, that seems interesting. He was more interested in being a DJ than a footballer. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with more being more interested. But you could have told us beforehand that you were sent a forward that didn't like heading the ball. Well, I suppose, I suppose that's not the sort of thing that comes up in the medical either. <laughs> no, it no. doesn't occur to you. Maybe they should do that. The club should just dangle a ball from the doorway. And if he ducks underneath it, you go, oh, we're not signing him. Yeah, because normally when you have the inter- an interview for any job, it's sort of, you know, are there any other things which you think we ought to know about you? And, you know, he, he could have brought it up at the time. Yeah, he, he could have done, but then he would have lost his huge but signing on fee. But I'm, I'm quite pleased, actually, that if any club is going to sign somebody who's a better DJ than footballer, it'll be Brighton. <laughs> we'll, keep him, we'll keep him on anyway. Fat boy, fat boy needs someone to carry his records for him. Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Well, we started talking, Kieran, about teams that have plummeted. Here's a team that's... um, by comparison, skyrocketed. And this is a question from Cole Arkinstall, uh, which is name of the week, I have to say. Congratulations, Cole. Uh, Cole Arkinstall says, Last season, my local club, Rushall Olympic, gained promotion to the National League North, the highest step the club's ever played at. Despite this obviously being an incredible achievement, I was wondering to what level clubs of this size, with average attendances of around 300, in season 22-23, would have to make adjustments to infrastructure on and off the pitch. It's a humble little club with some fair-sized clubs now coming to visit, so surely more bars and an away end are obviously uh, ways of making money. But what else will they need to do to get up to league standards? Now, I'm on a bound to say here, Kieran, Mm. uh, there's there's a book out 
there Cole is. might like to read that it has exactly this this scenario in it. It's um, it's it's a book based on our pod, Kieran, unfit and improper persons, um, and we talk about that in the book. But just as, as by way of a praise for Cole, I mean it's a fantastic achievement for Rush All Olympic. Um, how how far can they go, and how much is it going to cost them? Um, I, I think things if if the club makes more progress are going to become quite pricey. Um, if, you, if you move to the National League, um, there is an expectation. Yeah, you can still you can still have a uh, 3G pitch, 4G pitch, um, if, if that's what you've got already. But uh, in terms of you know, the number of seats, you've got to sort of at the back of your mind be prepared for a move up to uh, the EFL where... They they, they 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 rightly protect the integrity of the competition by saying there is an expectation um, in terms of the minimum number of seats, minimum number of way seats, facilities for referees, uh, facilities for you know, even simple things like uh, you know, the, the the vans for the the broadcasters because they they've, they've got a lucrative broadcast deal with Sky and so on. Um, so yeah, first of all, fair play to uh, Russia Olympics. I've, I've looked at their accounts, and they used to be um, an unincorporated uh, entity, which was effectively you know, a members' club. So they didn't have the the protection given by limited liability status, so that they had to operate on a break-even uh, basis. Um, and they've spectacularly successful. I, I didn't know that they were based in Warsaw. You know, I, I, did, you know, I did a little bit of background and you know, Warsaw is, is, is a fine club and we've mentioned them on a couple of occasions ourselves. But there's, of, of all of the, if, if you were to say, you know, na- name me another town in the country where you think there could be scope for uh, a second uh, league club, I don't think Warsaw would have come to many people's Lips, you know, if, if this was if, if, we, if we were on celebrity pointless, I, yeah, we, we'd we'd have struggled with that one, wouldn't we? Yeah, we are going to. This is our new campaign, everybody. To, we're going to get on celebrity pointless, so that won't be the first time you mention it. Kieran and I have been talking about this every time we meet. Let's get on celebrity pointless, um, which which you would enjoy. Oh no, Osman's not doing it anymore, is he? So you would you wouldn't have the un, unusual experience of being the small one. In the studio, <laughs> um, I like Walsall is a great town. I love Walsall. Mm. Um, uh, the Arboretum is fantastic, and I'm sure the people of Walsall uh, hate it. But I love the fact that it's Noddy Holder's voice in the lift when you go to the art gallery there. <laughs> I only have to do it once a year. People, are, well, I'm not suggesting the people of Walsall are obliged to go up and down in the lift in the museum every day, but it's probably less amusing to them than it is to us. Dan Connors as our next question. Um, and this is an interesting one. It's a simple one, Kieran, but it's not something I think we've discussed at any length before. Dan says, can clubs protect themselves financially if they sign a player who has a history of injuries? For example, can they include a contract clause where if a player is unavailable due to injury, they only get a small percentage of wages? Some clubs seem to have a much higher risk tolerance for signing these types of players. I mean, this is a discussion Palace fans have had recently for, for various reasons, whether it's training or whether it's the background of the players themselves as and Elise for example probably will only play 10 games each this season so you do wonder whether contractually that will have any effect I'm, I'm guessing I know the the two words you're going to be coming up with Kieran, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
you, you've uh, you spotted those words uh, well in advance. <laughs> as soon, I think as soon as you saw this question, yes, I did contact one of our secret uh, sports lawyers and also one of our secret agents, um, and they said it, it is possible to have a pay-as-you-play um, clause in a contract. Um, it's not the norm because injuries are. For, you know, for, for most players are seen as being yeah, an occupational hazard. And what, what you don't want, you know, it, it then becomes counterintuitive. If a player knows that there's going to be a draconian reduction in their remuneration, should they be subject to an injury, they're going in for a 50-50 ball. And you know, you, you, they'd have, you know, for example, Mason Holgate might have pulled out of that tackle today if well, he knew that. Yeah. Not so um, good, was it? Uh, you know, that, that potentially he might have injured himself as opposed to uh, trying to uh, uh, find uh, Karu Matoma's knee uh, at 90 miles an hour. So if, if the player does have a, a record of injuries, then I, I think in order to protect itself, the club is likely to say, we will pay you on a match-by-match basis in terms of, of your appearance. And if the player is confident or the player's representative is confident that they can find an alternative, then they'll go and find it. But quite often, the reason why the the, the club is in the position of offering such a contract is they're probably aware that the player has had a history of injuries. So it tends to be in respect of players who have not managed that many fixtures on a historical period of time their previous contract has run out or their contract has been cancelled by their previous club. And therefore, you know, we've often said when it comes to negotiation, one party isn't a stronger party that is in a stronger position than the other. And in these particular circumstances, the club is in a stronger position than the player and the player effectively has to accept um, whatever's on offer. I, I suppose it must work the other way around as well, Kieran, when sometimes a player... Uh, and and his agent may not want to go to a club where you have a manager who's uh, you know encourages full contact in training for example or who prefers much more physical training training without the ball so there are some players who think that's a club that that won't suit me because i i think i'm more likely to break down in training at that club than i am at another mm. one um, this next question kieran um it comes from a palace fan so i'm always keen to weed those out I'm really looking forward to your answer to this question because I'm slightly surprised by it, to be honest, because I didn't think this was an option. But Graham Burt, uh, hello, Graham. I always like to say hello to Palace fans. Hello, Graham. Uh, cheer up. Things things will be fine. Every, every little thing will, is going to be all right, um, uh, which is unfortunate. There's a friend of mine who works at Palace who uh, persuaded the DJ, for want of a better word, to put that song on at half-time. Um, last week against Chelsea. So we're all happily singing every little thing's going to be all right. Just as Chelsea equalised right at the start of the second half. So, yeah. Graham, we're fine. It's, it's, all, it's all good. We're, we're, we'll be 12th. Don't worry. But Graham says, as a Crystal Palace fan married to a Sheffield United fan for many, many years, congratulations, I was fortunate enough to get to see both clubs in FA Cup semi-finals over the last couple of years. Hopefully, Graham, you weren't together in the playoff final back in the day when Hopkins scored in the last seconds. But having said that, said Graham, this is a bit that really interests me, Kieran. I paid £115 for two tickets to watch Palace 
in the semi-final, but only £55 for two tickets to watch the Blades. We sat in virtually the same seats in both years, so my question is, who sets the ticket price and why the considerable discrepancy? And this is interesting, Kira, because it implies that the clubs have some say, or, uh, some say in the setting the ticket prices here, and I, I wouldn't have thought that was the case, is it? No, no, they are very much set in advance by the Football Association. And remember, the FA Cup is, is, is there partially to generate revenues for the FA. Um, so, yeah, I, I was quite surprised. And I, and I took a look at the prices for um, the FA Cup semi-final last year because Brighton played Manchester United. And, and they varied between, I think, £40 and 85 So... You, it, it's one of those strange things. You, you can be three seats apart and you're paying 50 quid. And because there has to be a demarcation line, uh, it could be that Graham was just on the wrong side of that. But there certainly have been issues in terms with the uh, the rate of increase of ticket prices, especially for the bigger tournaments. And there's no doubt that the, the FA Cup, which went through a fallow period, appears to have... Uh, regained popularity with with coaches and, and fans and so on. We are, we, we are seeing uh, fan, you know, fans travelling in, in bigger numbers and, and hats off to all those those Maidstone United fans that were queuing up round the block for, for their FA Cup match to look, look forward to. And, and, I, and I hope they have an absolutely fantastic day out and, and we wish them all the best. Yeah, if there are any um, people from the FA listening who would like to get in touch and explain the ticket pricing policy we'd love to hear from you because um i was slightly taken aback by this question um yeah and first of all you, you start thinking well maybe the fa think that sheffield united fans can afford a little less than those fans from down in london but i would i'd be interested to get some clarification from the fa on graham's questionnaire jamie moss has our next question jamie says would there be merit in removing the 3 p.m blackout but only for the football league and the leagues below. Do you think this would have a material effect on the value of the EFL TV deal? And we've seen discussions recently as well, Kieran, about removing that blackout for women's football as well. So women's games could be shown at three o'clock at, uh, on a Saturday afternoon as well on TV. Yes, I, I think finding a definitive spot for TV purposes for the women's game is proving to be a challenge. And, and for, and I also got to say at this point, uh, huge congratulations to uh, Arsenal women's team and the the marketing department there. You know, to have a sellout at the Emirates is is a hell of an achievement, and it's indicative of the the increase in interest in the game. And, and you know, they've got what six home matches taking place at the Emirates this season, and they've all had fantastic crowds. But this this is uh, this is another benchmark. Um, to which they, they should be uh, very proud. Um, in terms of the 3 three p.m. blackout, the positives from it would be that you should be able to extract a bit more money from the overall value of the teal, but only a bit more because um, the... The EFL and Sky have an agreement which is going to come on stream when, when the new deal kicks in next year um, in relation to showing practically every game with the exception. In fact, it is every game with the exception of the 3pm blackout. The 3pm blackout is there in theory to protect grassroots football. How do you go about 
defining grassroots football. If, if we take a look at the championship this this season, we've got you know, we've got clubs like Leeds United and Sunderland and Derby County and Portsmouth you know, and, and many others, all of whom have fantastic fan bases and Leicester and Southampton you know, and, and many others. Um, what about amateur football that takes place at 3pm on a Saturday afternoon? And then I'll think to myself, well, hold on, you know, for half the year, it, it doesn't kick off at 3pm. You know, it kicks off at 2 or one thirty because those clubs don't have... have uh, uh, have floodlights or anything similar. Um, it's not stopped other sports, you know, uh, amateur rugby league, amateur rugby, t- you know, from those th- those uh, bodies taking place. So I, th- I think there is scope to to look at it um, and for somebody to take a step back and to do some proper research into this. I think the the fear has been is that if we take a look at uh, the impact on attendances in and we say grassroots football is anything other than the Premier League, which which I think I think is isn't quite right. But if we take a look at, at attendances at say League One, League Two, National League, when there have been um, Champions League matches taking place, and compare them to Tuesday nights when Champions League matches are taking place, and so on, that there is clearly a, an impact, but it's not it's not a huge one. So. You have to be um, a little bit cautious about reaching too many conclusions. And then you've got to say, well, if there's going to be a financial negative impact on grassroots football, but the overall cake is bigger, can we give some of the increased money to grassroots football? And then, of course, we fall into this this trap that we presently have between the Premier League and the, uh, the EFL as to how much money is an appropriate amount. So, yeah, that's... That's the downside. Yeah, I, I, I do feel that, do, do we need, yeah, we, we've got so much football on, do we actually need to have 3pm football being shown live? Um, you know, if, if, you want, if you want to have an interaction with the game, the chances are that the local radio station will, will have you know, some sort of broadcast um, and you can watch you know, TNT Sports, you can watch Sky, um, you can listen to talk sport and, and five live and you'll get a very good summary of what's taking place and then you can watch the match you can watch the highlights from the matches 15 minutes after uh, the the final whistle so we 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 have almost saturation point when it comes to football and i think this would saturate it even more which would make it again more complicated for for the women's game if we're trying to grow that as well yeah, we we've discussed before, Kieran, the, the reasons why the three pm kickoff historically became traditional are, are many and complicated, and not everyone agrees why it happened. But yeah, it did. I, I'd be I'd be devastated to lose traditional three o'clock kickoffs. I yeah, there's still something about a Saturday afternoon. If Palace aren't, it's like this weekend. Palace aren't playing till Monday. There's something about just lazing around on the sofa. Listening to scores come in or watching scores come in at, mm. at three o'clock, and also thinking, "Wow, I can't wait for match of the day now," or "I can't wait to," you know, somebody will send me the goals on YouTube later. I'm perfectly happy not to see them straight away. And talking of the price of football at the the, the grassiest of grassroots levels, Kieran, we're, we're going to talk. I've just decided this. I'm putting my producer cap on. Um, cool. We're going to talk about. You sent a tweet today about a, a local borough raising the prices of 
um, awful. Pitch, yeah, yeah, pitch higher. So we're we're going to talk about that, Kieran, on Thursday in our news pod. We'll also talk about another story you mentioned as well, which relates to Everton and the downgrading of seven seven sevens financial prospects. Um, it looks like this is going to be a big few days for Everton. Mm. You know, big game tomorrow night against us. Rumours that the appeal will be announced within the next seven days, it seems. And of course, everyone's putting two and two together and coming up with <laughs> why they think that all these people in pubs who go, no, I know what's going to happen. It's not, you know, you don't. <laughs> yeah. It hasn't been no, announced no, Nobody yet. knows. No. So there's no point in us speculating until it happens. But it does seem as though that is is imminent. And of course, that will have, you imagine, an impact on the next set of charges. So it is a big... Uh, a big week coming up for Everton and the 777 news that we'll be discussing only adds to the imponderables uh, at Everton at the moment. It's not a good time at that club. Um, uh, our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from Chris Devine. Um, an interesting one, again, spreadsheet mm. heaven for somebody. Yes, spreadsheet heaven, yes. uh, Chris Devine says, at the end of last season, Leeds appointed Sam Allardyce for the last four games. It was reported that Big Sam would be paid £500,000 to manage the team for the last four games and would have got a bonus of £2.5 million if he'd kept Leeds up. This made me wonder, what is the most a manager has been paid for managing a club if it was based on a per-game basis? And before you answer this, Kieran, um, as we're talking about legendary managers of a certain age, I think it's uh, an ideal time for me to obviously say that we wish uh, Roy Hodgson very well in his current illness. Um, I understand that he's fine and stable, but uh, every Palace fan, every football fan will only be too happy, I'm sure, in joining me in um, accepting, I hope, our best wishes for his recovery and for his future. Uh, Meanwhile, Kieran, back to Big Sam and this eye-watering deal. Yes, um, I I did some research. And first of all, yeah, I absolutely echo. We've often said that uh, football, football, and football rivalry—it's—it's it's panto for for, for grown-ups who should know better. So yeah, Roy, Roy Hodgson is is a, a a damn good human being, and you know we we send him big hugs and love from from all of the Albion as well. It's the least we can do. Um, in, in terms of this, there's sort of a couple of things which came came to light. First of all, um, Mourinho has has earned seventy million pounds in redundancy pay. Wow, um, which which is quite spectacular. So, but having said that, you know he he's delivered trophies and and he was at Chelsea. You know, he's always been in work, um, and when, when he's moved on, he's he's managed to extra you know do extremely well. Um, but I did some sort of I, I did some calculations, and in my opinion, sort of the most expensive managerial appointment, and not all of this money went to the manager themselves in terms of wins, was Graham Potter at Chelsea. Um, Because under Graham Potter, who I am a huge fan of, I think he's he's, he's a really good guy, Chelsea Chelsea won in the Premier League on seven occasions. Now, we don't know his salary, but if the media figures are... To be uh, to be believed during that period of time, um, he was there for around about seven months. He was supposed to be on um, uh, around about a million pounds a month, so he'll have earned six or seven million pounds. 
he had a five-year contract, so they would have to give him, in my opinion, a minimum of a one-year payout. So that's going to be another twelve million. And then I got hold of Brighton's accounts for twenty twenty-two, which and they put in their footnotes. Oh, by the way, we've received twenty-one million pounds compensation for something. We're not going to say what it is. And then we go, well, okay, that's Graham Potter's, yeah, Graham Potter's <laughs> leaving fee. So you add those figures together, and that comes to a grand total of £40 million, which means that he was effectively paid £6.5 million per victory in the Premier League whilst at Chelsea. Now, we also have to say, yeah, Chelsea made reasonable progress in the, in the Champions League, but from a pure Premier League basis... Um, yeah, that was uh, that was quite an expensive uh, experience as far as Todd Bowley and Co were concerned, um, and it's not stopped them from raiding Brighton left, right, and centre ever since. Uh, and they're currently, by all accounts, trying to take Brighton's head of recruitment because it's twelve months since they last taken Brighton's head of recruitment. <laughs> Relax yourself, Kieran. Run yourself a nice <laughs> warm bath. There are worse things to worry about. Why would Brighton? Kieran want to reveal that figure in their accounts and why why could Brighton not just say this is 21 million pound is a figure we got from Chelsea for compensation um under the accounting rules yeah, clubs clubs are very loath to give specifics so it's under accounting rules if a transaction is what we refer to as material material is is significant to anybody reading would the disclosure or non-disclosure of, of that particular transaction would it change your perception of the business um this was this was after the end of the season but you're supposed to put you know clubs are, are supposed to put all significant transactions so um I, I suspect there would have been a conversation between the club and the auditors and the auditors said well you know 21 million pounds that's all you know that's where you're bright you know you're that you're a club with a, an annual turnover of about 140 to 150 million pounds in a good season in the Premier League. That's yeah, that's 15 percent for of yeah, and and also the whilst it, it, this is sort of you know sort of layers of layers of four dimensional chess, um, they want to send out the message that we're Brighton, we're not we're not pushovers, so don't try it. Um, Everybody knows it's about Graham Potter leaving, but we're we're going to not specifically say that. And we've seen similar. I think when uh, Steve Bruce went from Sheffield Wednesday to Newcastle, Newcastle paid six or seven million pounds in compensation. Um, if we take a look at Middlesbrough's recent accounts, they said, "Oh, we we received two and a half million pounds in a legal settlement." But we're not going to say what that legal settlement is. And everybody goes, oh, that'd be compensation for Derby in the year that they got into the play. So it's sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Look, aren't we actually quite good at this type of thing without wanting to, to name players? And, and I mentioned uh, in respect of Lukaku um, and the impairment of Chelsea's uh, player pool that year. Um, again, it, it's... It's impolite. I think I think it's, it's disrespectful towards the player to say, "Look, we signed Lukaku. He hasn't been very good. We've had to write down his value." Yeah, you know, no, nobody would want that. You know, and first of all, you know, no player ever sets out to 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 not have an impact when they join a club. And 
the reason why things don't work out can be for a myriad of reasons. Um, but you, you can reading between the lines, it is something which you have to do as an analyst. So I'm sorry to come back to this, Kieran, but it just intrigues yeah. me. So, Because if, if it had been me reading Brian's accounts, I'd still be wondering, what's that 21 million quid for? I can't. And you could point me, you could say, like, a crossword clue, well, it's, you know, seven down, four across. To think of a manager that left, I'd still be going, no, I can't. Where's 21 million quid come from? But could you could you go then to the equivalent accounts of the same period for Chelsea, and would you find in Chelsea's accounts a payment of £21 million that they don't disclose what it's for? Because you mentioned the Middlesbrough Derby one. Derby didn't produce accounts, so you wouldn't be able to go to yeah. Derby's yeah. and find and find that £2.5 million payment there. But would you be able to just join the dots by looking at Chelsea's accounts? Yes, and what Chelsea are likely to do, and Chelsea haven't yet published their, their 2023 accounts, is oh, that right. they will say, um, and these were in Brighton's 2022, but they had to put it in as a post-year end because it's such a big transaction. Um, if we take a look at Chelsea's 2023 accounts when they come out, there will be some sort of um, anodyne commentary um costs associated with uh, personnel changes and of course you've also got uh, so you'll have Potter's payoff you will have the compensation to Brighton and you've got Thomas Tuchel's payoff as well and you sort of you have to peg them together especially with Tuchel to uh, you know to work out you know where where you think the overall totals lie. Our final question, Kieran, comes from Jimmy Mulvihill. Now, I initially thought this question came from Jimmy Mulvihill, who's yes, the, man who runs, <laughs> the man who runs Hat Trick Productions, who make Have I Got News For You? So I thought, well, I'm going to have to read this question out. I don't care how bad it is, I'm going to have to read, because he pays me a lot of money every year. Um, also, Everton season ticket holder as well, so these are very awkward times when Palace play Everton. Uh, Jimmy Mulvihill has a question that's become very topical, it turns mm. out. And Jimmy's, Jimmy says... With the recent developments of Kylian Mbappe being given more control over the running of PSG as an organisation, in addition to his responsibilities as a footballer, and with the rise of the footballing super-rich superstar, can you see a time in the near future where a footballer runs down their contract and then buys a club outright and signs himself to them? Now, 20 years ago, this would have been a ludicrous question, but increasingly, it's not so much. Yes, I think this could only apply realistically to the top two or three players in the world. Players who are global brands in their own right. And, and we've seen this um, where, to a certain extent, the player is bigger than the club. And, and if we take a look at Cristiano Ronaldo in terms of his impact in the Saudi Pro League, take a look at Lionel Messi with Inter Miami, and there's still repercussions from that in, in terms of what's happened in, in Hong Kong. I believe... Um, that the uh, the Chinese authorities say, yeah, we are very disappointed and uh, a, a friendly with Argentina, is, which was planning to take place, is no longer take place and so on. So yeah, there, there, there's been a, a lot of ramifications from that. Those players could be tempted to, uh, say, run down the contract and then do something similar to, to what we've seen with David Beckham and into Miami in the sense that they set up the football club 
and uh, you know there's there's no reason why Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi could could not have been involved with you know especially with Messi and Inter Miami he could have been involved in setting up Inter Miami buys a stake in the club and says right I'm, I was a free agent because my contract at PSG has ended I'm going to get involved in this new adventure that that will work it it won't work and this is not disrespecting any of these clubs if if you're a left back at burnley if you're a you know if if you're a, a center half at walsall it ain't going to happen because you you a you don't have the resources and b you don't have that that global cachet in terms of uh, you know cristiano ronaldo is a is a, is a marketing tool as far as many, you, know, you look at the number of uh, Instagram followers that he has. If he puts on a certain set of sunglasses, then then you'll get get an awful lot of likes on Instagram. Well, you, you can do that in terms of setting up your own football club if you're if you're that big a player in your own right. I think that's a perfectly apt description of Cristiano Ronaldo, a marketing tool. That's exactly what he is. Um, also, if you're the left back at Burnley, I imagine you're probably still under a duvet, rocking gently backwards and forwards. <laughs> yes. Just at the moment after, after yesterday, God love him. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you. That will get you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, you can email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And if you want to buy any of our merchandise or books, you can go to the same website. We'll be back on Thursday. Hopefully, Kieran will have uncurled himself now because he's getting it's, it's getting to a tighter and tighter ball in that attic as I watch. <laughs> um, in the meantime, I shall hand you over to said Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Uh, well, thank you uh, as always, and thank you for Eric for that uh, that email. I, I genuine, I, I was genuinely touched um, because we we do love football history and heritage and the the closeness of a football uh, club to to the people that surround it. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, there's, there's various ways you can support the club. If you, if you don't want uh, the adverts, uh, Patreon is is an option for you, um, and. We're grateful for all that as well. There's another way that you can support the club, and um, that's to uh, give us a review. Uh, it helps us in the charts, helps us with the algorithms. We, we've got quite a few guests coming up, and David Bernstein was, was absolutely fascinating on Friday, especially the, yeah. the stories of daring do in relation to uh, Wimbledon and, and Rangers. Uh, but you can write whatever you want as far as um, – the, the review is concerned. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Mr. Magoo and Mason Holgate, and it <laughs> wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to us. Well, talking of Mr. Magoo, Karen, how did the referee not give a straight red? <laughs> well, I mean, I th- to be fair, you know, I think he's it, it, it happened so quickly, and, and he was yeah, on the wrong point. side, uh, because I, I was I was sort of behind, you know, uh, uh, Matoma was running away from us, and we saw we saw it was a foul. And initially, I don't think the referee even gave a foul. I think it was the linesman. Um, but uh, yeah, so he, but he then gave a yellow. I think on the advice of the, the linesman, and then was called across VAR. And ha- having seen it on VAR, um, the referee wouldn't have seen what what you subsequently saw on on camera. So the, the right decision was made in the end. Yeah. Except to make the tackle in the first place, because that was, yes. that was, that was yes. an awful tackle. Uh, yes, no criticism intended to referees. Sometimes you can be too close to something, can't you? Bye, everybody. Bye.
that provides some football. Buy some football.